0: Here's a guideline for preachers that I'm told I should follow. If someone were to, at two o'clock on a Sunday morning, rudely give me a shake and wake me up and say, what are you preaching on today? I should be able to, in one concise, brief sentence, tell them what I'm preaching on. In other words, there should be one theme and message that it clearly is all about. Now, I have to admit that I haven't stuck with this guideline this morning. I don't think I could tell you the one sentence. I don't think I've got like one message that it's all about. Because I want to take you through some verses and show you, try to show you that they are so rich and they've got so much in them. Uh, Too much for me to manage to show you all of it. Uh, We're between series at the moment. We finished our series on Isaiah. We're not starting a new one quite yet. And so I want to bring you an example of how God's Word has been benefiting me just in my personal reading of it recently. It's from Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. If you've got a Bible and you can do so, it would really help to have Luke 13, verses 10 to 17 open. Now, before we get into this, it's worth bearing this in mind. From the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, it used to be claimed that Christian beliefs about Jesus had evolved over many, many years. And the New Testament, as we know it, had evolved over many, many years, gradually over time. So so that belief in Jesus being God become man, and the New Testament as we have it today, so they claimed, didn't come about till at least 200 years later. 200 years after the time they claimed Jesus was around. Well, now it's recognized by people who study this, even by non-Christians who study this, that that's just not what happens. The evidence is clear that the New Testament as we have it today was written within a few decades of the time of Jesus. And within a couple of decades of the time of Jesus, there were plenty of people around who believed he was God become man who died for sinners and rose from the dead. These things weren't put together, evolving over a couple of centuries. No, it's more like people came to them quickly, at least within a couple of decades. Why am I mentioning this? Because it means if, as we look at Luke, we find here is an amazing piece of writing about an amazing person. We have to ask, how did this come about? It wasn't cleverly devised by the church 200 years later saying, look, we can tie this together and make it look good. The best answer is, it's true. And Luke was writing what actually happened. God guided him to write God's amazing message. And Jesus is the most amazing man who ever lived. Because he is God become man to die for sinners and rise again. So let's see, is this an amazing piece of writing about an amazing person? Let's get into Luke chapter 13. And we start with a disabled woman in verse 10 to 11. A disabled woman. Now, uh, Philip read to us a miracle, so let's think about miracles. Why did Jesus do them? Why are they there in the Bible? It's it's not to tell us that miracles are normal, expect miracles. That's not why they're there. They are there as pictures of salvation. Miracles picture something of Jesus saving sinners. I wonder if you can think of some examples. Think of examples of miracles and how they picture salvation. Raising Lazarus, that might be one you think of that pictures Jesus has the power to call dead people to new life and give them the new life think of those times when Jesus touched the leper and made them clean that Jesus goes to unclean people and he's not afraid to touch the untouchable and he has power to make them clean And we could go on through all sorts of miracles, the the water turned to wine, the calming of the storm. And if we think about it, see a picture of salvation. Well, what about this miracle in front of us? What does this woman picture? Well, what was she like? Have a look at verse 11. What was she like? She was bent over and she could not stand up straight. Now, obviously, that would make life difficult, wouldn't it, being bent over and not able to stand up straight? That would be painful and awkward in many ways, but it's more than a physical condition. It's actually a spiritual picture. Children, think of cats and dogs and horses and most animals. How do they get around? Well, on all fours, aren't they? Bent over on all fours. What about apes? I know most of the time they're swinging in the trees, but when they're down on the ground, what are they like? Bent over, dragging their knuckles on the ground, aren't they? Humans are different. Upright. I'm just now try to stand upright. It's not just a physical fact, it's a sign of human dignity. An expression of human dignity as God's representative, his image on earth to rule over the other creatures. And it's been spoilt in this woman. She's lost that dignity. She looks pitiful. But it's also a picture of something else. Being bent over pictures something else. Children, imagine that 200 years ago, you saw a group of people chained together and they're bent over, their backs are bent by a heavy burden that they're carrying. Can you guess who you're seeing? You're seeing a group of slaves. The bent back is a picture of slavery. And Jesus refers to this woman being bound, being enslaved. And in fact, later on in verse 16, he says she needs to be released from this slavery she's had for 18 years. So when we read in verse 11, she was crippled by a spirit, it isn't saying all illness is demonic activity. I hope no one here says that. That's going well beyond the Bible. It's contrary to the Bible. To say any illness or any trouble we have, it's demonic activity. No, certainly not. Her disability is a picture teaching us about the spiritual state of all of us before Jesus saves us. We've been made God's representatives in his world, but that's got spoiled and we're not doing it properly before Jesus saves us. The dignity of the image of God has got broken. Few people have bent backs physically. Some do, but thankfully few. But many are bent down under a slavery to sin that they can't they can't mend themselves. Bent down under a burden of proving themselves or finding the thing that's going to give them peace and fulfilment in life. Bent down under a feeling of guilt that they can't throw off. So is this woman... A picture of you. Let's move on from a disabled woman to, secondly, a man who'll lift her up. And he's in verse 12 and 13. She goes to the uh, synagogue because it's the Sabbath day. It's the place of worship where God's word is read. What will be there for her that day? What word of help will she receive? Well, here's a word of help. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Here's a man who can restore the dignity of the image of God in her, who can free her from her slavery. Verse 12, sorry, verse 13. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, again, it's not a promise that today God will heal everyone who's got bent over, maybe in old age, maybe from some disability. But it's a picture of salvation. So let's think about what Jesus did. Let's go through in order what he did. What was the first thing he did in verse 12? It would be easy to miss it. Children, have a look at verse 12 and see what was the first thing Jesus did. He saw her. He saw her. Jesus sees us in our slavery to sin. He sees the indignity of the image of God having been spoilt, And he's moved with compassion. He saw. And then what did he do? Verse 12. He called her forward. He called her forward. The word of Jesus comes to us. Come to me. I'm the one who can restore you to how God made you to be. Come to me, I'm the one who can release you from slavery to sin and that being bent down under a sense of guilt. Jesus calls us not to fix ourselves or not to a religious technique that will improve us. He calls us to himself. He's the one who can mend us. And what happens next? Jesus saw her, he called her. There's something that must have happened in verse 12, but it's not mentioned. Can you think what must have happened, although verse 12 doesn't tell us? Jesus calls her forward, then he's going to say something to her, but but there must have been something in between. Surely she must have come forward, mustn't she? And he speaks to her. She must have come forward. Now, if I called you to the front now, think of this, I named you and said, come on, come, come up to the front here, how would you be feeling? Would your heart be starting to beat a little faster? You'd be thinking, does he really mean me? Why does he want me to come to the front? What's he going to do? In front of all these people, You know, even if you're not a particularly shy people, it tends to make your heart beat a little faster, doesn't it? For her to come forward, think of it shuffling, painfully bent over, in front of everyone, what does it show? So she must have had a sense of need to do it. And she must have had some sort of faith in Jesus that this man is going to do something that will make it worth the embarrassment of coming forward, shuffling forward, bent over in front of everyone. He must have a good reason. Am I describing you? Do you see the spiritual picture? Having the humility, the sense of need and the faith to come to Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Verse 12, he gives her good news. Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He gives her good news. He's setting her free. The good news of Jesus is words that are good, but more than words. Verse 13, he touches her. You know, salvation isn't just us making a decision. It isn't just us being persuaded and coming to a belief. It it does need that. It is that. But it requires more than that. It requires Jesus to actually change us. He's a physical man in heaven. He at this moment can't physically touch us. But his Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit, he reaches into our lives and he changes our hearts. And so what happens next, verse 13? She is changed. Immediately she straightens up. See, salvation is, is so much more than just having a ticket to heaven or just having your sins are forgiven and the guilt is gone. They're wonderful, but it's so much more. It is God changing us. It's Jesus lifting us up out of our sin, mending the image of God in us giving us the power to say no to sin. And then what happens? Can you see there's one more stage in verse 13? There's something happens next. This time it isn't Jesus doing it, although he certainly caused it. She praises God. Of course she praises God. Of course she does. No surprise, is it? She's standing upright. She's been released from what enslaved her for 18 years. Of course she's praising God. And you? Has Jesus reached into your life? Has he lifted you up? Has he released you from what enslaved you ever since conception? Of course you'll praise God. Of course. If there's anyone here and you're not a Christian and Jesus hasn't yet done this for you, Do you see that this is good news? Do you see that this is worth having? Do you see that Jesus hasn't here told us, the Bible hasn't here told us, a technique or a method for improving yourself, for sorting yourself out? It's told you about a person, and it said he is the one you need. Trust him. Ask him. Pray and ask, Lord Jesus, I'm bent down by my sin and I can't put myself right. Please, will you mend me? Children, that's a pretty simple prayer, isn't it? I'm not meaning you have to memorize all those words and get it exactly right. But you could pray a simple prayer like that, couldn't you? Jesus, I'm I'm bent down by my sin. It gets to me. And I can't sort it out myself. Please, will you mend me? Jesus answers prayers like that. He loves to do so. I know that not just because of what he did for this woman, but because of where he was going in Luke 13. This section of Luke is all a journey, and he's all going somewhere, and you'll see where in verse 22. He's on his way, verse 22 says, to Jerusalem, and he's on his way to the cross to die there for broken people. That's why I know he loves to answer prayers like that one I've just told you. Now, we need to move on next to a much less pleasant character. He's in verse 14. We move on now to an indignant man, an indignant man. Children, imagine at school, you're sitting there minding your own business, doing your work in your lesson at school, and the boy next to you slaps you on the back of the head. And it makes a loud noise. And the teacher looks at you and says, right, you, no golden time for you this week. And you say, but but, but, but it was him. He right, no golden time next week either. Now, how do you feel? How do you feel, children? He slapped you on the back of the head, and you're the one in trouble. How you feel, I would imagine, can be described by the word indignant, indignant. Because indignant means angry that something wrong has happened. Angry that something's happened that is really wrong, it's just not fair. Well, here's a man in verse 14 who's indignant because Jesus has healed someone. Why is he indignant? Is it because he has a right concern for God's law? Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. And the fourth commandment says, keep the Sabbath day holy. And Jesus, yeah, you're breaking that law, so I'm rightly indignant. No, it's not that really. He thinks it is. He pretends it is. But it's not that. You see, the Sabbath was a day for doing good and honoring God. You may know the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20, but they're also in Deuteronomy 5. And in Deuteronomy 5 it says the Sabbath is a day for remembering how God releases slaves. And even then in Leviticus 26 says, and it reminds you, Israelites, how God released you from slavery so you could stand upright. That's significant. You see, this synagogue ruler had lost sight of what the Sabbath was all about and what the synagogue was all about. Why really was he indignant? The real reason is because he was the synagogue ruler and he wanted to keep control and he wanted things done his way and he didn't want anything undermining, doing down his status. And he wanted things kept Comfortable for him. It's so selfish, but it's also such a pity. Such a pity. Because if he'd let go of his agenda and get on board with God's agenda of mending broken people, he'd find there's so much joy in that. That's one of the themes, by the way, of Luke's Gospel. You might think of chapter 15, it's all about there's joy of getting involved in God's agenda of mending broken people. What about us? What about you? Like the synagogue ruler in any way? How do you decide if it's been a good Sunday? How do you judge when you leave church if it's been a good time at church or not? Because it's been comfortably familiar? Because it's been excitingly new? Because it's been done your way? Is it about what people have thought of you? How you felt about it? Isn't that all rather like the synagogue ruler, rather turned in on self? Forgetting what it's all about. Jesus restoring the image of God. Jesus releasing people who are enslaved. You know, it's a pity when we're like the synagogue ruler. Because the people who get most joy out of church aren't the people thinking, how do I feel about it? Is it done my way? It's people wanting to see Jesus at work in needy people. And who know that includes them. There's still so much more mending, still so much more releasing of slavery to be done in all of us. So that brings us back to Jesus. Let's get back to him again. And it ends in verses 15 to 17, back with Jesus. A theme of Luke's gospel is Jesus brings down the proud and he lifts up the humble. And you find that here in verse 15 to 17. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. In other words, not just him, but the others. It's hypocrites, plural. Anyone else who's joining in with the synagogue ruler's attitude, you hypocrites. Now, sadly, you, many of you probably know there have been some really bad scandals in, in the worldwide church amongst leaders recently. Really bad scandals. And some of them have partly, partly been because no one's had the guts to point out when someone was going wrong because he's too big a church celebrity, too powerful. No one's had the guts to point it out. Well, here Jesus has the guts. What guts? Right there to their faces, he shows them your words and your actions do not match. He brings down the proud. But he lifts up the humble. Look what he says about this woman, verse 16. He says, you are treating her worse than you treat your animals. And she may have looked pitiful, bent over like that, but she's no animal. Now she's a human in the image of God. And more than that, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's in God's family. You see her, him lifting up the humble. It's so lovely. You may not have the status symbols our society looks for. You may not have a string of letters after your name. You may not have a glittering career. I don't know what other things you might not have that you feel like, I don't have those things, the things that make people look up to others. But if you've gone to Jesus with your need, humbly, he commends you and he loves to lift up the humble. He's still doing it in verse 17. It ends with, he humiliates the proud. That's a strong word. He he really brings them down, humiliates them, but he also brings joy. Verse 17, the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. All of this is a scale model demonstration. When I was a pupil at school, a little model of a building appeared at the school. Just a little model, didn't look anything special, but it was an architect's model. And a few years later, a great big new technology block was built. It was like the little model, but much bigger and much better. And what we have here is like a little model of something bigger and better. A woman who we don't know her name, in a synagogue where we don't even know where it was, being healed, might not seem very big in the scheme of world history, but it's a scale model demonstration of something really big across history. That's why we've got verse 18 to 21 next. Jesus says his kingdom starts small, like a little seed, but it's got to do something really big. And so over the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been lifting up so many broken people. Jesus has, across the nations of the world, been mending the image of God in millions of people. Jesus has been releasing countless people from slavery to sin. And one day, we'll see him do it on the biggest scale. Every one of us, even if you don't believe in him, you'll see it. Because one day, he's going to release all of his people, raise them up from the grave. And he's even going to remake, not just humans, but the whole natural creation. The whole universe. He's going to remake it all and restore it to its original dignity it had before the curse. And on that day, those who oppose him will be humiliated. And those who are humbly trusting him, they will be just like verse 17. They will be delighted with the wonderful things he is doing. Little scale model demonstration here in Luke 13, but it's of something you cannot get bigger than that. Have you caught the vision? Have you caught the vision that Luke wants us to get, that God wants us to get? We've just looked into it a little. I haven't been able to cover it all. Into these writings that are amazing. And they show us a person who's amazing. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded? Here is God's message about God's man. He is God become man. And have you caught the vision? Do you want to be some part of something big? Do you want to have something that says, my life is, worth part, is part of something worthwhile? Well, you can't get better than this. Jesus has a big plan. And it's for little, low, broken people who he makes whole and raises up. Are you one of those people? Do you have a part in his plan? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Bible, your amazing message. We thank you for Jesus, the amazing God become man with a great plan for broken people. Please, Father, may none of us, indignantly like that synagogue ruler, stand outside that plan, thinking we're better and we have no need of such a saviour. Father, may all of us, even if we've done it many times before, take our need and our brokenness to Jesus, recognising again how much we need him, and then be lifted up by him, lifted up with encouragement, but also lifted up with enthusiasm, to be part of his great plan. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.